Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. Just finished. We spent about four weeks before we before we broke for Easter time. We spent about four weeks in the book of Romans uh, in the in chapter eight, and uh, chapter eight is known as the greatest chapter in the whole Bible. And I have to tell you, I thoroughly enjoyed preaching through Romans eight. Matter of fact, we took four weeks just to get through that chapter, and um, it's probably the one where most people memorize scripture out of. It's also the one where we oftentimes misapply some of those scriptures. So after finishing the greatest chapter in the Bible, where do we go from there? Well. We go to the chapter, chapter 9, that most people just want to skip over uh, because it is probably the most difficult chapter in the Bible as far as understanding it, interpreting it, wrapping our minds around it, where chapter 8 was so simplistic in the presentation of the promises of God and the awesomeness of God. Now we get into some things that presents God in a way where you just kind of go, huh? And how does that reconcile with the goodness of God that we saw in chapter 8? That's why we sang just a minute ago with King of My Heart, that he is good, he is good, he is good. And church, let me ask you a question. Do we believe that he is good? All right. Chapter 9 is going to challenge that a little bit, okay? And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, by the time we leave today, after going through chapter 9, we're not going to have all the answers. You know how I know that? Because people way more learned than me or you or anybody in this room have, have looked at this and tried to figure it out and try to understand it and try to, you know, just make sense of it all. And they have failed at that. So I don't think we're going to actually like, you know, solve the, solve the big mysterious code. When Paul says elsewhere in scripture that the gospel and the kingdom of God is a mystery, I think he's talking about Romans chapter 9. Okay, I really, really do. Okay, uh, because the more I've studied it, the more I'm just like... Why did I ever commit to expository preaching ever, ever, ever? Matter of fact, it was really hard to collect some good resources on this because uh, scholars, commentators, there are less resources for chapter nine than there is for any of the other ones. And so I kind of felt like, could I just skip over it too? You know, if everybody else gets to, could I do that? But, but we're not gonna do that because it's important. Even though it's difficult, it is extremely important because it's been said too that chapters nine through 11 are really the key that unlocks understanding a lot of the rest of the Bible too. Uh, so while it's hard for us to wrap our mind around chapter 9, as we move into 10 and 11, it really becomes that key for understanding the rest of the Bible. So uh, we're not going to skip chapter 9, but I'll tell you this, I'm definitely not going to stretch it out to four weeks. So let's try to get through this in one, in one sitting, okay? And, and you're thinking, okay, so it's Mother's Day. Why in the world are we doing this? Um, because, because I wanted to get back into, into Romans and let the word be the most important thing. Mothers, it's not that you're not important, but we come here to worship the Lord, right? And so we're getting back into this, uh, getting back into this today. So let's read Romans chapter nine and let's read it in its entirety. And I'm not gonna stop to make, to make uh, comments. I'm just gonna go through this, but we need to go ahead and take this in the whole big bite that it actually is, okay? Romans chapter nine, beginning of verse number one, it says, I speak the truth in Christ and I am not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the, the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The ancestors are theirs, and from them by physical descent came Jesus Christ, who is God over all, and praise forever. Amen. 
Now, it is not as though the word of God has failed, because all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Neither are all of Abraham's children his descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. That is, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. For this is the statement of the promise, at this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but Rebekah conceived children through one man, our father Isaac, for through her sons, or for though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his election might stand. Not from works, but from those, from the one who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. So what should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will or on effort, but on who God shows mercy. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this, seat, this reason so that I may display my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So then <laughs> he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens those whom he wants to harden. You will say to me, therefore, why then does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, a mere man, to talk back to God? Will what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like, uh, like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? And what if God, wanting to display his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory? On us, the ones he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As it also says in Hosea, I will, not, I will call not my people, my people. And she who is unloved, I will call beloved. And it will be in the place where they were told, you are not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. But Isaiah cries out concerning Israel and says, though the number of Israelites is like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. Since the Lord will execute his sentence completely and decisively on the earth. And just as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left off his offspring, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. What should we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, namely the righteousness that comes from faith, but Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not achieved the righteousness of the law. Why is that? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, look, I am putting in Zion, a stone in Zion to stumble over and a rock to trip over, and the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. And who is that stumbling stone, church? It's Jesus Christ, right? So anybody just looking at this going, hmm, okay. Anybody, anybody else looking at that like, okay, where are we going from here, right? Let's pray before we go anywhere, <laughs> all right? Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Even the difficult parts, even the parts that we go, okay, because we're really gonna need your spirit to understand. So I pray this morning that you would speak to us. I pray that we would have open ears, open hearts, open spirits, and I pray that you would do your work through your word. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so I'm a, I, I, I am blessed. I, I consider myself, today is one of those days I have to remind myself because I, I get to work with this piece of scripture today. Uh, it's one of those days I, I drive to church reminding myself it's a blessing to be called a pastor. It's a blessing to be called as a pastor. It's a blessing to be called as a pastor. One of those other blessings that I have is, on, is when I get to preach on Mother's Day. I also get the blessing of being the pastor of my mother. My mother attends church here. My grandmother, my mother-in-law, the mother of my children. Uh, you kind of expect that one, right? But the other ones just do it voluntarily, right? Um, 
so I always get the chance to say happy Mother's Day to my mom. And I just wanted to let you know that I love you and I'm very grateful for you. I may not be your only son. I may not even be your favorite son. But I am your son. So happy Mother's Day. <laughs> so, uh, no, I, I, I say that because I wanted to set this up. Anybody, anybody in here an only child? Anybody in here an only child? Okay, so you never had to deal with the torture of being a sibling and wondering if your mom liked one of your brothers or sisters better than they liked you, right? If they were your favorite. I never had to wonder because I just flat out knew. All right, it was Adam and it was Adam all the way. All the way, right? No, I'm teasing. I'm teasing, right? That's one of the things that we say. Well, no matter who holds us as favorites or who doesn't hold us as favorites, at least God doesn't play favorites, right? Because he loves all of us equally. Well, but then you look at this piece of piece, this, this beautiful piece of scripture, and you're like, hold on for a second. Does he or does he not play favorites, right? Because in this passage, there's some, there's some verbiage that looks like God's got some favorites, Right? I mean, verse number six, it says, not all who descended from Israel are of Israel, right? Meaning not everybody who was Jewish was necessarily part of the blessing and not all of Abraham's children were his descendants. And then he says in verse number 13, he says, I have loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. We always talk about God being loved, but then we see what? He hated Esau, right? And then we see in verse number 15, I'll show mercy on who I want to show mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I want to show compassion. Verse number 18, he has mercy on those he wants to have mercy, and he hardens those that he wants to harden. And all of a sudden, you're looking at that, and you're holding it up to, to chapter 8, and you're holding it up to the gospel, and you're holding it up to John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and you're going, what in the world is going on? Anybody else doing that? Everybody's been doing that. The church has been doing that for centuries, back and forth over this. And you say this, is this the same God who's supposed to love the world so much that he would give his only begotten son that whosoever would perish would... Have, or whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life, right? So is it to say that God loved the world except for Esau? Like the entire world, he loved the whole world except he hated Esau. And he shows compassion on the entire world except for those he doesn't want to show compassion to, right? Like I said, this chapter is insanely confusing and so many people stumble over this passage. And I often wonder why Paul puts this chapter in scripture. If it were not for the Holy Spirit of God dictating these words, I'm wondering if he's even writing this going, what are you telling me to write? And for many people, chapter 9 seems to present a different gospel altogether, almost like it's a gospel that has holes, you know, like Swiss cheese. Like it's, it's, it's wonderful, but it, it would be great if it didn't have so many holes in it, right? And it makes you wonder if it's really true. See, in all transparency, I struggle really hard to grasp chapter number 9. I struggle with ideas like election and predestination, and I don't fully grasp the depths of God's sovereignty, right? And I, and I don't know if we're supposed to. Because if we were supposed to, I think somewhere, someone along the way would figure it out. We're left with a lot of questions. So what I want to do today is try to examine some of those questions that many people ask, especially when we look at a world where people are trying to understand God and they ask questions like this. If God is so good and loving, then why do bad things happen? If God is so wonderful, then why does he allow us to sin? And some people even say, if God is so wonderful, then why does he tempt us to sin? And why doesn't he just let everybody go to heaven anyway? And so I believe chapter 9 begins to set out the answer for that. But as the church, we've got to come to a place and ultimately it comes down to this. It's not about whether God is good enough for us to believe in. It's whether we can believe in a good God. 
It doesn't come to, because God's going to be who he is whether we believe in him and whether we follow him or not. God's going to be king whether we worship him or not. God is not going to be affected by who receives and who rejects, but we certainly are. And so this morning, that's what I want to look at, and that's kind of the framework we have to look at in this. And I want us just to buckle up and hold on and really pray for the Spirit to, to work through this. And I'm just going to go ahead and say this. We may not get through all of it today, and I really want to. So listen fast. Please listen fast, okay? First question that you, you have to ask when you look at this passage. Since so many people reject the gospel, we see that happen all the time. And we live in a world today, and it's always been that way, where it seems fewer people trust Christ than those who reject him. More people are against God than they are for God. So since so many people reject the gospel, does that mean that God has, has picked a flawed way to redeem humanity? In other words, does the gospel have holes? Or should the gospel be something different and something more attractive, something that is more beautiful, something that will grab people's attention more than it does today? See, the tone of this passage seems to focus more on the people who don't get salvation and who don't get the gospel than it does on those who do. They reject the gospel, they reject God's love, and it seems like there's a lot that are in that category. We're given indications throughout scripture that when all is said and done, there will be more people that reject God and the gospel than there will be that accept him and receive him and trust Jesus. And that's hard. And that should break the heart of God's church, shouldn't it? And I just believe it doesn't break our heart near enough. We are not like the apostle Paul is in verses one and two. Look at what he said. He said, I wish... For my countrymen, for the Jewish people, I wish for my people that I could die and have my salvation stripped from me and I could go to hell so that all of them could come to the gospel and know Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the tears that Paul shed. I wonder, church, if that's the tears that we're shedding today. But when I look at like Facebook comments and I look at all the arguments that we're having back and forth, it really just becomes about owning people and pulling people over to my side rather than showing them the love of Christ. And having that, that heart, not so much, if they don't get it right, I can't like them. It's if they don't get it right, they're going to die and go to hell. And this is where Paul was. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. Enter through the narrow gate. The gate is wide and, and the road is broad that leads to destruction. And there will be many who go through it. But narrow is the gate and difficult is the road that leads to life and few will find it. Several times the epistles refer to a gospel and the grace of God as something that is mysterious. And this tells us that even Paul and the apostles didn't completely understand how God worked grace out. But what they did know and what they did understand is if people don't hear about grace, they can't receive the grace. So several times we see that. And we see in our text that the majority of God's chosen people, the Jewish people at that point rejected Christ and the gospel. And like I said, in verses 1 through 2, Paul is brokenhearted saying, I'd be willing to give up my own salvation so that all of them could come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. Verses 3 and 4 tells us that the Jews were God's chosen people, and they were given like somewhere about seven to eight different adv spiritual advantages that nobody else in the world was given. They were given the bloodline of Jesus Christ. They were given the ministry of Jesus Christ. When Jesus was on earth ministering, he ministered specifically to the Jewish people, yet they rejected him. The majority rejected. And here's how that applies to us today. There are some people that no matter how much the gospel is preached or how well the gospel is presented and communicated, they're still going to reject the good news. They're still going to reject. 
And the question we're left with is why? Especially for those of us who know Christ. Why would you reject such a marvelous gift? Why would you turn it down? So the question is, does this mean that the gospel is weak? When you look at it and you're thinking, God, you have all power, you have all control, and you're sovereign. Why would you make a gospel and why would you present a method for people to come to Christ that most people are going to miss? And Jesus even said, I know most people are going to miss. Does this mean that his omnipotent power and unending love, all of this, does it mean that it's not enough? Or maybe that God should have chosen better agents. He should have come up with an agency better than the church or better than the foolishness of preaching to make the gospel more, uh, more amazing to hear. Is that what it means? No, because what we see in our text, and hold on for this because I even shocked myself when I wrote it. What we see in our text is this, that to those that God has chosen... The gospel is 100% success and retention rate. To those whom God has chosen, the gospel will have a 100% success and retention rate. Now, I realize that that is probably the most Calvinistic sounding statement I have ever made, right? And you know I don't take a Calvinistic view or stance on grace. So the question is, how do we get here? Because dealing with what the word says, how do we get here? So that leads us to the second question. First question, is the gospel too weak? Shouldn't God have chosen something more powerful if he truly loved us? Shouldn't he chosen something more powerful that people just could not deny so they could come to him? The second thing is, does God choose people for salvation or do people choose him? Does God choose people for salvation or do people choose him? The best attempt to answer that question, we've got to look at some examples that Paul gives us in our text. So let's look at verse number six and seven again. Look at what it says. It says, now it's not as though the word of God has failed. So there's the question there. The word of God has not failed. So Paul is saying, no, the gospel's not too weak. The gospel does not have holes. And here's why. Because not all who descended from Israel are Israel. Neither is it the case that all of Abraham's children are his descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. So if we go back to the Old Testament, there was a distinction with God between Jews who were Jews only by blood and genetics, who had that physical heritage, and those who were children of the promise because they placed faith in the promise that God had given to Abraham, and they placed faith from the heart. See, the covenant that God made with Abraham to form a new nation was never really about making Israel the greatest nation in the world. The covenant that God made with Israel was about making them holy and about making them his followers and showing his power and his glory through those people. It was always about people's personal trust in God's promises. See, Paul, back in chapter 2, if you remember back in chapter 2, when he said that circumcision of the heart was God's aim rather than the physical act, we're back to circumcision again. Isn't that fun? And on Mother's Day, no less, right? Thanks, God. Appreciate that. Paul uses the examples of two Jewish sons to illustrate this. Those who are circumcised by the heart, the we have Jacob and we have Esau. Or we, first of all, we have Isaac and we have Ishmael. Ishmael was not a son that Abraham had with his wife, Sarah. He had one with Sarah's handmaid, Hagar. And so he was not necessarily a descendant, a full-fledged, full-blood descendant of Israel. But Isaac was. Or, uh, but, but Isaac was. And then in verse number 13, we see this. That Isaac goes on to have two sons of his own, Esau and Jacob. And while Jacob you got to look at Jacob's life and say he wasn't really someone that you would want to take home to mama. I mean, he was deceitful. He lied. He was stubborn. You know, all of this stuff. But here's what God says. God says, I'm going to make sure that Jacob gets the birthright and he's going to be the one that becomes the child of the promise. And what happened with Esau? What did Esau do? 
Esau sold his share of the promise for a bowl of soup. Right? He gave it away. Ultimately, though, it was his choice to do that. He didn't have to do that. So the question is, does God choose us for salvation or do we choose him for salvation? And I believe the answer is yes, he chooses people for salvation. And yes, we choose him for salvation. Yes, it's both and. How can it be both and? Especially in the way we look at things today, right? Because there's always got to be a black and a white. There's always got to be a wrong and a right. It can't be both things at the same time. See, there's a contextual issue. And here's the thing. Here's what some people are probably asking right now. Wait a minute. Didn't Jesus say that he chose us? He says, you've not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Yes, he said that over in the book of John. He did. But there's a contextual issue as to whether he is talking specifically to his disciples about calling them into the ministry because he's speaking specifically to his disciples there. And also, it's a chronology issue. Is Jesus saying, who chose first? If he's saying that, then God chose first. God chose us, right? And this is where the idea of election comes into play. See, God has chosen us first so that we may choose him in response. You see, it doesn't matter how much we want to follow God. If God didn't want us to follow him, it wouldn't have happened. And God chose to allow us to follow him when he sent Jesus to the cross and said that all who trust in him will not perish but have eternal life. So yes, God chooses us for salvation, but we also choose him for salvation as well. In verse number 11 of our text, we see that while Rebekah was carrying the twins, Jacob and Esau, she was told that the other or the older one would serve the younger. And at this point, it says this, before either kid had done anything good or bad, before anyone had done anything good or bad, God had already chosen that because he wanted us to understand the chronological order of election and of a salvation. Before anyone, any of them could prove their worthiness or their worthlessness, God had already determined to call and the promise would be based upon who he knew would faithfully answer. So how is it possible and biblical that God chooses us for salvation, but that we also choose him? I think it's so important that we see that the term election is used. And we understand this probably in a better way than even the ancient reader did too. Because we come from a, of a governmental system where we, we have elections, right? And it's majority rules and whoever you vote for, if you have more votes, then that's the person that wins. And so when it comes to the election of our salvation, it's an election process. There's a two-vote system. You got to have 100% of those two votes in order for salvation to take place. God cast his vote when he sent Jesus to the cross. God cast his power over that vote and backed up his promise in that vote when Jesus came out of that tomb. But God cast his vote at the cross and said, all who will may come. And we cast our vote when we come to the cross and say, God be merciful to me, a sinner. 50% of the vote ain't going to do it. God, that positive vote for salvation is already in there with everybody from God. But then that positive vote for salvation with us is, will we receive the gift of salvation? So God chooses those who will be saved. And yes, we choose if we will be saved on how we respond to the gospel. You say, okay. So that opens up another more difficult question. Has God elected some for salvation and others for destruction? Has God just chosen that some will be saved and some won't be saved because isn't he sovereign? If he was so loving, why didn't he just make it so everybody could be saved? Paul says it like this in verse number 14. What should we say then? Is there injustice? And that original word is unfairness, partiality, or favoritism with God. And then Paul says this. 
There's a lot of questions that we pull from this, but here's one thing we can be absolutely sure of. Absolutely not. God is not unjust in the way he dispenses his grace. God is never unjust in the way he dispenses his grace. But how can that be possible given the line that we read after verse number 14 and verse number 15? It says, for he tells Moses, I'm going to show mercy on who I show mercy and I'll have compassion on who I have compassion. Man, that sounds rough, doesn't it? Does that sound like the loving, merciful, all whosoever will may come kind of God? So thinking of Ishmael and Esau, the question we want to ask is whether or not God was fair in only showing mercy to Isaac and Jacob and not doing the same for them. Why did Isaac and Jacob get the promise and Esau and Ishmael didn't? And the answer to that question is another question. What is the true nature of mercy? We say that God is gracious and he is merciful, but what is mercy? Mercy is receiving something that is good that we don't deserve. It's getting the good that I could never earn on my own. And so by its very nature, if I deserve mercy, or if I'm owed mercy, then it's not mercy anymore, right? And this is what God said, I will show mercy on who I will show mercy, and I will show compassion on who I will have compassion. So if God doesn't owe anyone mercy, we don't really get to make the argument that it's unfair or unjust for him to show mercy to someone or not to show mercy. This is why sometimes when we look at our brothers and sisters who seem to be like getting more blessings or it seems like we're struggling and they're not and we look like God and like, how is that fair? Because we still think we're owed something, don't we? We still think, man... I'm doing all this, and that's what, that's what we get into works, right? That's what was the, the problem with the, the Jewish culture at that time, too. It's all about the law, all about what I've done. So don't I earn and don't I deserve some of those blessings? And the answer is, unfortunately, no. We don't. And that's what makes mercy so beautiful. It's really easy to look around and see sometimes that we struggle with what we think of ourselves. Even those of us who have said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Sometimes I think we're saying, God, be merciful to me, who is mostly a sinner. Because we still think there's good. There's good there somewhere, right? After all, as Christians, we're commanded to love everyone, right? So it's easier for us to say, if I'm going to love somebody, I'm going to look for some redeemable qualities to love in them. But here's the thing. If we love someone only because they're lovable, is it really godly love? You see, justice of God is that everyone be left in condemnation and mercy is that he chooses to save the condemned. I love what John Stott says. Paul's way of defending God's justice is to magnify his mercy. That may seem backward to us, but it isn't because Paul says that the question is misconceived because the basis on which God deals savingly with sinners is by his mercy, not his justice. See, if God was dealing with us and our sins through Strictly through justice, none of us would have salvation. But he deals with us savingly through his mercy. He said, I'll show mercy to who I show mercy, and I have compassion on whom I have compassion. And he is deemed that I will show mercy on those who ask for it. Ishmael and Esau gave it away. They didn't ask for it. But still, how does a loving God choose to save some and some to destroy? Well, this is where we get into the next thing. Choosing is not the same as determining or creating for that purpose. See, 
To understand that, we have to see the example of Pharaoh in verse number 17. And if you thought Isaac and e- if you thought Ishmael and Esau were fun, Pharaoh's going to be really fun to look at too, okay? So that's what leads us to an even more difficult question. Has God wired some to receive Jesus and others to reject him? Why does it seem like some are just, when you share the gospel, are just easy? They come to Christ. And why does it seem like some people, no matter how much you try, they just continue to say no. They just continue to have this hard heart against God. This is the question that many people attribute to the term predestination, like this, that I'm predestined to something, or that it's preordered that this is going to happen. Like, we're just, you know, living some computer program out, and God is up there with the joystick and playing with us, right? There's this old joke running about predestination, is what did the guy who believed in predestination say after he fell down the stairs? Anybody know? Glad I got that over with. (laughs) Okay, we're not getting it. All right, anyway. (laughs) <laughs> a little preacher humor. Um, like, man, it's a sad life you live, all right? This is the idea that God has mapped out everything in our lives, meaning that we really don't have a choice in anything. And if that be the case, then God is very cruel to some, and he's very good to others. But that is not the case because God is good to all of us, right? That's the gospel. If God is not good to all of us, there is a major hole in the gospel, it asks whether God at some time long ago uh, said, decided when he created us, I'm creating you and you're never going to receive me. I'm creating you and I'm, and I'm going to allow you to receive me. That's the idea of predestination or predeterminism. That's tough. That's tough. So let's look at verse number 16. It even says this. It doesn't depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. Oh, man. That's getting even tougher, isn't it? Doesn't depend on my will or on my effort, but on God who shows mercy. Now we see in verse number 17 to explain what takes place. Paul goes all the way back to the book of Exodus and he gives us this historical reference. So if you remember the story of Pharaoh, right? Or if you've seen the movie, The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, right? It used to be on like every Easter season. It doesn't come on that much anymore, right? But you remember that, that, you know, where God calls Charlton Heston, I mean, Moses, he calls him to go back, you know, to Egypt and go up to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And, you know, the snake, you know, the, the staff turns into the snake and then the ten plagues sweep across Egypt. All of that movie was based off of the historical thing that happened centuries ago when the Israelites were enslaved by Egypt and Egypt was building this massive empire. The pyramids that we see today, still over there, the ruins, those were built on the backs and by the hands of the Israelites centuries ago on the slavery there. So if you remember that story, all that takes place and Moses goes into Pharaoh and says, God said that you need to let his people go. And Moses is like, nah, I mean, or Pharaoh's like, nah, I don't think I'm going to do that. I I think I need my workforce and I think I'm just going to let them, let them stick around here. But thanks for stopping by, pick up a, a nice, a nice gift basket on the way out, Moses. We appreciate it. And the Bible says that Pharaoh hardened his heart to God, right? So look what it says in verse number 17. Paul points out a really interesting fact that we sometimes gloss over in this whole story, right? Because what we see happen later on is this happens 10 times. After every plague, Moses comes back and says, are you ready to let the people go? And Pharaoh's like, no, I'm not going to do that. Until after the 10th time when the death angel passed over and Pharaoh lost his firstborn son. And Pharaoh says, okay, you all need to get out of here. And then he changes his mind. And then what happens? He sends his army out to chase him over and then as they're backed up against the Red Sea, God parts the Red Sea and the Israelites walk across on dry land and while the army is giving chase to him, all the water sweeps in and consumes the army 
of Pharaoh, decimating not only his industry source and now decimating his security, leaving him with nothing. So the question is, why did God make Pharaoh? Why did God make Pharaoh? And look what it says in verse number 17. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason so that I may display my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So God tells Pharaoh that it was God who had given him all the power and the position that he enjoyed. He allowed Pharaoh to do these things and to get this wealth and to get this power. And why? So that God could show his power over everything in the whole earth. So God tells Pharaoh that it was all given to him so that God could show forth his glory, not Pharaoh's. And what did Pharaoh do with all his power and wealth? He showed forth Pharaoh's glory in his power and his wealth. So look at verse number 18. This is when it gets really harsh. So then it says, he has mercy on who he wants to have mercy, and he hardens those whom he wants to harden. Not just he'll have compassion, but now it says he gets active in hardening the hearts of people against him. That doesn't seem like a gracious God. So the question is, did God make Pharaoh oppose him? Was this just some big setup by God to create Pharaoh over there so that he could have a cool story and Charlton Heston could make a movie back in the 60s and 50s? No. This is what it looks like. And if you go back to Exodus and you read the whole narrative, it does tell us this. It tells us this in Exodus 8, that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh after, after uh, plague number six. But that's the key. It says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart after plague number six. Who did the heart hardening in all of those other ones? Pharaoh did. Pharaoh made his choice. And in that choice that Pharaoh made, God in his sovereignty used Pharaoh, even in his defiance, to still show forth God's power and his glory. Here's the thing. We don't know what would have happened if Pharaoh said, hey, Moses, I've been thinking about that myself and I'm going to serve, I think I'm going to listen to your God and you can let the people go. And matter of fact, Egypt is going to serve your God as well. We don't know what would have come of that. It didn't, but it was based upon Pharaoh's hard heart. And as the process went, the heart got harder. And this is the real, this is the real urgent thing we need to pull from this church. Thousands of years, centuries removed from Pharaoh we can still play the Pharaoh in our hearts. The more we harden our hearts against God, our heart becomes harder. And sometimes God just allows that hardness to then be used to show forth his power and his glory. That's tough, isn't it? But again, we see this pattern of God used Pharaoh. Did God know he was going to use Pharaoh? Yes, but it was based upon the decision that Pharaoh made and what he knew Pharaoh would do. So did God choose to use Pharaoh as a way to show his power? Yes. And did God choose to show his power by destroying Pharaoh's power and everything that he held dear? Yes, he did. Did God create and manipulate Pharaoh for that sole purpose? No. Pharaoh chose that path. It was only after Pharaoh rejected God's command five times that God exercised his power in that way. Every single time that Moses went, those five times was in some ways a presentation of an opportunity to come to God. And he said no. So here's what it means. There are some that are going to interpret this passage and say that God is just playing chess with us. And that he's moving us around and he's doing things as he wants to just to give him some sort of pleasure. But that is not what he did. And that's not what he's doing. Here's what Romans chapter 28 tells us about the chronology of God's grace. For those that God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Does God in his sovereignty and his omniscience know who is going, know before we're even created, who is going to, who's going to 
receive him and who is not? Yes. Because he gave them the choice and he knew what choice would be made. So does God in his sovereignty predestine our lives? Yes, but in his sovereign grace, he has chosen not to predetermine our lives. Because if Pharaoh had hardened his heart because God had made him do it, would it be Pharaoh's sin anymore? No, he would have been doing God's will and therefore would have been holy. That messes everything up, doesn't it? God isn't to blame for Pharaoh's hard heart and he's not to blame for the hardness of our hearts. So as we look to close out this morning, and I know it's been, anybody else feel like you're tired from doing all these mental gymnastics? Yeah. So does God create or wire some people to be saved and others not to? No, he creates each of us with the ability and opportunity to follow him. But ultimately, God is going to use all of his creation for the purposes of furthering his glory. And so the question here that we come to here is this. Why doesn't God just use his sovereignty and his power to keep us from doing what he doesn't want us to do? Why did God choose to do it that way? If he knew Pharaoh was going to do it that way, why didn't he, in his sovereignty, his power, why didn't he just make Pharaoh do the right thing? Wouldn't it be easier? Wouldn't that be more loving? Parents, let me ask you this. Mothers, let me ask you this. Is it truly mothering? Is it a true good mother thing of you to do to have an iron fist, thumb down approach to your children their whole lives? No, we love them by letting them live their lives and becoming who God intended for them to be. This is what I think that Paul's addressing in verse number 19, really through the rest of the chapter. So we're going to move quick through the last part of the chapter, okay? But let's look at verse number 19. You will say to me, therefore, why then does he still find fault in us? Because if nobody can resist the will of God, then why does he find fault in us? If, in other words, if God is so sovereign and has all authority and power, why did he even allow us to sin and have rebellion in the first place? Or when looking at Pharaoh, if God's will was for Israel to be freed, why didn't he just force it to happen without all the drama and with all the pain to Pharaoh and to Egypt? If God is so good, then he would have saved Israel from being enslaved in the first place. If God is so good, they wouldn't have been enslaved in the first place. If God is so good, why does he let anyone perish? Which comes back to the most simple problem that most people have with God. If God is so good, why is life hell? Right? And that's a tough question. The problem is that question is very narcissistic and it's centered in our pride. Look at verse number 20. On the contrary, who are you as a human being to talk back to God? Yeesh. <laughs> Thanks. Well, what does form say to the one who formed it? Why did you make me like this? We have we're back in the book of Romans, and so as I was writing this, I was thinking, man, it's like an artist that sits down with a sculpture he's getting ready to sculpt, and, and Natalie and Bethany, they got to see these, all of these sculptures when they went to Rome. It's like, does the artist sit back and allow the piece of rock tell them what it's going to do? And I know some artists try to sound like they're really, you know, awesome, and they, I just let the rock tell me what it wanted to be. That's not what they do, right? I just let the canvas tell me what wanted to be on it. No, you didn't do that. It's ridiculous. Right? And then it says this. And what if, or, or I'm, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong place. Or has the potter no right over the clay to making the same lump from one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? We have to look at this through the understanding that he doesn't make us to sin. We corrupted his creation with sin. So still it's easy to say to this verse, a good God would have different plans for his creation. Why does God make it this way? <laughs> Here's the question. Here's the answer. Do we really think we have a better way than God? I ask you, Christian, or anyone, has there ever been a time when you thought, I can do it better God's way? 
or better with a better uh, other, other way than God? And how, how'd that work out for you? How'd that work out for us, right? This question reveals that we think we're smarter than God. Saying, I have a problem with the way God is running everything shows us that we think we're God and God serves us. Look at verse number 22. And what if God, wanting to display his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for his glory? So Paul asks us to flip this understanding of Stop looking for the problems with God and start looking at the goodness of God that in the midst of all the chaos that we created, he didn't cast us all aside. He made a way for us to be redeemed. See, we must not forget that we are not the point of all of this. There's a movement today and it's called Jesus. It's mixing, whoops, sorry. It's missing, it's mixing narcissism with how we exegete the passage. It means I'm going to read the word and I'm going to say, where do I find myself in it? Sometimes what we need to do is just back away and say, yes, I may find myself in it, but I'm not the, I'm not the main character. See, a lot of us now today, and because culture we live in, everything, we're the main character of everything, but we're not the main character of this book. We're the recipients of the goodness of the main character. We're the beneficiaries of the goodness of the main character. The main character of the book is God. And Jesus Christ and the work that he has done for us. And the main subject is God's glory. We may look at it and say, the main subject is my redemption. It's part of it. The main subject is God's glory. And our redemption is a great proof of God's glory. But that's not the subject of the word. The grand scheme of scripture and history and everything is his glory and his majesty displayed through Jesus. But see, the core belief in our existence is that the pursuit of personal happiness and absolute autonomy is what rules the day. But how arrogant and ridiculous is it in that pursuit to think that all of this is revolving around my happiness? God didn't write this book so I could be happy. That's a byproduct of his glory. My happiness and my joy and my peace are byproducts of recognizing his glory. Not God can be glorious as long as I'm happy. The purpose of our existence is to worship and bring glory to our creator and the purpose encompasses every single aspect of our existence. So when I'm asking what is my purpose, my purpose is not for me to ultimately just feel good about myself. My purpose is to glorify God who gave me my life. Paul used the ridiculous example of a lump of clay or a piece of art that an artist is working with that as the artist is working and forming into what he knows he wants it to be, the, the, the lump just shouts out and says, I ain't going to do that, man. We're going to do something different. You know, you want me to be a bowl? I want to be a plate. So he just like goes limp and lays flat or he hardens himself to that. It just doesn't happen that way in nature. But here's the goodness of God. Spiritually, as he works with us, as the clay that we are, he allows us to make the choice. Will I follow his hand or will I continually harden myself to it? Will I continually harden myself to it? And here's the thing. The question is, why doesn't God use all his sovereignty and his power to keep us from doing what he doesn't want us to do? And we're not going to like this answer, but here's the answer. Because that's the way he decided to do it. And he's God. And the question then is, well, is God good? Can I see God as good in the way he's decided to do it? That's what verses 22 and 23 is talking about. That the potter God, when molding us, patiently works even with the clay that talks back. See, what a potter does when he's got clay that just can't be worked with, what's he going to do? 
He takes a little bit of water and throws it over there to make it more moldable. What I find is beautiful is that the potter, when we became hard and we rejected him in sin, what did he do? He sent Jesus the living water to redeem us and make us moldable in his hands again. A vessel for his glory. But some of us, we still bucket, we still stay against it, and we still do that. And what Paul has been doing so far is using the example of how God has related to Israel through history, through his chosen people. And I think it's beautiful how he weaves references to their enslavement and deliverance into the narrative because that's one of the biggest hard clay moments in Israel's history. Because right after they were, right after they were rescued from slavery and they were worshiping God and they were awesome about that, a few weeks later, do you know what they were doing? God had them out there as clay on the spinning wheel, trying to lead them to the land of promise. And what did they start doing? The first thing that happened, they said, God's not good and we'd rather just be back in slavery in Egypt. And they got mad at God's man and they started murmuring. Sounds a lot like us, doesn't it? The minute something goes bad, the minute God doesn't do what I want him to do, God's not good and I'll just go back to something else. Right after using the stubbornness of Pharaoh to display his power and his glory, and he shows how he will see his will done, they start complaining at that. So what does the potter do? Does he pick the clay up? Does he say to them, fine, you want to go back to Egypt? Go ahead. I'm done with you. Does he throw them away? No, he doesn't. He sends Jesus Christ to be the living water to redeem them. And then just like with Pharaoh, they keep hardening themselves against God. And then God sends them that pivotal moment when Jesus comes to the cross. And he says, will you receive the living water, the Prince of Peace, the Son of God. And just like a potter who reaches over to a, a water bowl to restore dry and hard clay, a baby is born in a manger in Bethlehem. And his name is Emmanuel, is God with us. And Jesus grows up and he begins to preach and is to teach and is to ultimately be rejected by the majority of those that he came to save. His own people that his heavenly father had chosen and preferred to put him on a Roman cross rather than on the throne of their hearts. They chose to do that. And then Jesus rejected from the, or resurrected from the dead and the news of his resurrection began to spread and the Bible says that some believed and followed but the majority still rejected and then they sought to destroy those who preached Jesus. See, Paul is writing this after having been beaten and arrested and all of these things in his life because he was preaching Jesus. And yet he still said, if I could die without salvation so they could have it, I'd do it. So what did God do in his sovereignty? Did he destroy Israel? No. He patiently has shifted from a defiant people to offer grace and redemption to the Gentiles. And the Bible says he still has a plan for Israel later on. That's how good and how patient the potter is. And then we see what the difference really is between the chosen and the unchosen in verses 30 through 33. I'm not going to take the time to read it, but Paul points, again, points out basically what he's pointed out several times in Romans, that salvation doesn't come by making myself worthy through following laws or through figuring God out. Salvation comes through faith. By God's grace, through faith in Jesus God gave Israel every spiritual advantage and every road sign to Jesus, yet the majority still rejected him. They stumbled over him. And look what it says in the last part. It says, I'm putting a stone in Zion to stumble over and a rock to trip over, and the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. So the questions that we raised in Romans chapter 9 are more centered around why God would reject anyone 
Not around why God would reject us, but why would, God, would anyone reject God? That's the question we have to ask. Why would anyone reject such a good God who had every right to reject us all, yet gave grace and pardon to anyone who would have faith in him? Despite our uncertainties of how election and sovereignty works, we can be sure of this one thing. In order to be saved, I must come to Jesus. And the question that we close out this morning is, will you come to him? If you haven't come to him, will you come to him? We can argue about who comes and how they come and all that stuff if we want to, but the ultimate question is, will you come? Will you come to Jesus? So as we bow our heads and close our eyes this morning, I hope that your head is not spinning today. That was not my desire. I hope that I was able to bring that down a little bit, and I know we went a little bit long. And I would apologize, but man, that was a lot to get through in one time. But we couldn't just leave it hanging on all these questions. We had to bring it to a place where we saw Jesus, right? And here's Jesus at the end of all of our questions. Where do we come to again? At the end of all of our questions, all our confusion, where do we come to find focus? We come to Jesus. He said, I've set a stumbling block and many people are going to stumble over him, but those who don't stumble over him will receive grace. So the question is, will you stumble over him? And many people today are stumbling over him because they think I got to figure him all out before I do. No, that's what faith is about. All you have to do is believe that Jesus is the son of God and he is the one who can take away your sins. If you've not placed your faith, your saving faith in Jesus Christ, today's the day. Don't let it go any longer. Please don't. Today's the day to come to him. What I hope to have presented is not a confusing God today, but a God that in the midst of the confusion is still good and is still the one that we need to trust. We need to trust him. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about his grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section, or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.